This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 1st, 2013. The Gospel is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 and 7 through 14. The message is by Father Ron Baird. One thing I've learned as I've gotten whiter, I used to say grayer, but it's not really gray anymore, so it's... It, my son tells me there's a black splotch on the back of my head, which I think is grossly unfair because I can't see it. But um, that's good to know it's still there, I guess. But um, is that I began to look at more and more, what does it mean to be mature? You know, what does it mean to be particularly a mature Christian? You know, Paul says that we should build one another up so that we may grow into the full stature of Christ. Well, how would we know if we got to the full stature of Christ? And that wasn't an easy thing for me to even side start looking at because my generation didn't believe in growing up. Um, if you remember from my generation, it was, I hope I die before I get old. <laughs> um, and don't trust anybody over 30. That's why when they, you know, when people talk about 50 being a real crisis point or 40, I, those didn't bother me. It was 30. <laughs> that was hard for me. I'm like, oh no, I can't trust myself. This is terrible. But as we, um, as we grow older, and particularly if we take our faith seriously, we begin to wonder, well, how, how would I know if I was truly becoming a, a better Christian, becoming the person that Christ wants me to be? What would it look like? if that happened. And there are some characteristics. We talked about some of them during Lent. Um, but there are some distinguishing characteristics, I think, that really point these things out to people. You know, we talked about some before, like peace. There's a serenity about mature Christians. They just seem easygoing, relaxed. They don't let things rattle them. They don't worry about things um, because they believe God truly is in control of the universe and that it will work out. And I've gotten better at that. I'm much better at it than I was when I was in my 20s. I still have a ways to go, but it's something that I strive for. Another one is joy. You know, Christians are joyous. Now, you might not know that by looking at the multitude of churches and the people in them, because I've met an awful lot of grumpy Christians in my life, and I kept wondering, you know, if somebody died so that you could live forever, what are you grumpy about? <laughs> I mean, how bad can it get? And And yet, awful lot of times Christians don't seem very joyous. And so I think that that's part of what growing up is about. Because is, to be joyous, you really have to have a, a basic ingrained trust in God. You know, one that's second nature even. So that you're always looking at, at the good things that are going to come about. And you realize problems are, they come and they go and it's not a big deal. But the third one, which I think is probably the hardest for me, I don't know if it's hardest for you or not, is humility. You know, humility is a lost art in a lot of ways. It's not very popular. The word humility comes from the word humilis, which is the Latin word to mean grounded. It doesn't mean, you know, less than or no good. It means grounded. And so to be humble isn't about somehow or other being um you know, not as good as other people. It's really uh, about being yourself, who God really created you to be, and being comfortable being yourself. But it's not very popular anymore. I mean, can you imagine a humbled person running for president today? What would they say? So, so why should we vote for you? What have you accomplished? 
Well, I mean, all by myself, I didn't really accomplish anything. I had a lot of people that have helped me along the way, and, you know, I kind of did some things, and it seemed to work out pretty well, and we all got together, and we did a bunch of stuff. I mean, how far do you think that would go? I mean, that wouldn't happen at all, would it? Instead, what we do is we have ads that used to tell us how wonderful people are, but I, don't, I think they've decided people don't believe that anymore, so now they just run ads telling you how bad the other person is. Because <laughs> um, that seems to be easier for people to believe. And, and think about it, we, we don't teach humility anymore. You know, when was the last time you heard of a, a humility class being taught in public schools? You ever hear anybody talking about humility in public schools? They talk about self-esteem, don't they? They don't talk about humility. Because humility is not very popular. Even, you know, it's like if you apply for a job, you know, what do they do when they teach you to make a resume? Hmm? Yeah. Tell them how great you are, right? Do you tell them about all of the mistakes you made? All the dumb things you've done? No, you wouldn't do that, would you? You know, you got to put your best foot forward. And so we just constantly are promoting ourselves and we're trained to. Even now, we're doing it with teenagers. If you want to go to college, you got to fill out these questionnaires and applications and you got to promote yourself in that too. Tell them about all the activities you've been in and all the stuff you've done. I mean, as near as I can tell, everybody in the United States are the most successful, most gung-ho, you know, hard-working oriented people I've ever met in my life. And yet somehow or other, we still have murders and crimes and suicides and depression and divorce and all these other things. Isn't that odd? We're much more concerned with the image than we are with the reality. Because if it looks good, it is good, right? If you're old enough, which many of you aren't, you may have read a book by Marshall McLuhan called The Medium is the Message. And, and he predicted in the early 60s that video, television, would change the world because it would no, matter, no longer matter what was said, it would only matter how it looked. Because people would only be concerned with the image. Kind of scary, isn't it? There's an awful lot of it like that. And so what we end up with is people wearing masks all the time and not being genuine and not being real. And yet what Jesus tells us is that we're called to be humble. You know, even in the Old Testament, it says, God does not despise a humble and contrite heart. You know, humility is a great thing. It's something that we should strive for. And we kind of know that in one way, because we really don't like people who are the opposite of humble either, do we? What do we call them? Arrogant. Nobody likes to be around arrogant people. So somehow or other, you have to manage to be self-promoting and wonderful without being arrogant at the same time. And yet, that's impossible. I mean, back in the 1800s, if you ran for president, it was interesting. If you told everybody you wanted to run for president, nobody would vote for you because it was considered arrogant. You had to say you didn't want to run for president. And then people would come and get you. It used to be to be a bishop in the church in the early days, the way people became bishops in the church was somebody in another country who knew about you, a bunch of bishops would get together, they would vote and, make, and decide they were going to make you a bishop, and then they would send you a message. If you didn't come, they would send soldiers and kidnap you. And people oftentimes ran away because they didn't want to be a bishop. I'm not worthy to be a bishop. Can you imagine that happening now? I mean, those things don't happen. And all too often it's pride, which is really the opposite of, of, um, of humility that gets a problem. And, and part of our problem, again, is with the Word. You know, one, nobody likes to eat humble pie, 
And everybody should be proud of themselves, right? So what are we saying? Well, when we talk about pride in its sinful form, what we're really talking about are people with an inflated sense of self. They think they're a lot better than they really are. Do you know any of those people? Do you remember anybody who, who thought they could sing a lot better than they really can? It's like that. You know, or people who thought that they were a lot more spiritual than they really are. So how do you determine if you're if you're achieving any you know part of humility? Well, part of it is that you think back on people that you've known in your life that you would have considered humble and ask yourself what characteristics do they have and do I match that? But if you want a real easy pop quiz for it, the best way to check is ask yourself, how do I respond to criticism? What are the ways we respond to when somebody criticizes us for something? Get defensive? What else? Is everybody here good defensive? Attack? Best, best defense is a good offense? <laughs> hmm? If it's, it's one option, we could actually listen to it. Of course, then you get to decide whether or not it's constructive. How do you do that? Sometimes we avoid people when they criticize us too. We just go away. We don't have anything to do with them. Because oftentimes when we're criticized, we feel like somebody is putting us down or being condescending to us. But in reality, that says more about you than it says about them. Because really what criticism is, is someone's opinion about something. And it might be right, and it could be totally wrong. <laughs> what are you doing to this child? <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Summer. Says I'm being kidnapped. <laughs> the uh, just totally threw me off. Um, when we're criticized, we feel like somebody's putting us down. And but what we could do is say, you know. That you might be right. Let me tell me more about that. Why? How do you see it? And you can listen, and then you can actually look at yourself and ask yourself a question like, "Do I really do that? Or is that really what I'm doing? Is that really what my motives are?" And and then you're going to come up with one or two things. If you're honest, you may come up and say, "Well, yeah, kind of." So maybe I ought to change. Another option, you might come up and say, "Well, if I am doing that, if I am being that way, I don't see it. I mean, I, it doesn't." It doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't. And quite honestly, at that point, it doesn't really matter whether they're right or not. Because if you don't understand it and you don't see it, how in the world are you ever going to change it? <laughs> I mean, it's impossible. And it's quite possible that they're projecting their own issues onto you. And so, how we respond to criticism becomes a, a good measure for how we're doing in terms of humility. You know, what's your knee-jerk response to somebody, you know, criticizing you? Because if you're truly a humble person then what you realize is that you're really okay even if you're not perfect and that the other person is okay to have that opinion. They're entitled. That doesn't necessarily mean they're right. I mean, one of the great things about humility and being grounded is that you're comfortable in your own skin and you begin to realize that everybody else around you isn't God and neither are you. And so you don't have to take their opinions any more seriously than you do theirs. The person you really have to take seriously is God. Because that's what humility is really about. It's about being happy 
with who God made you to be. Not saying that you know you don't make mistakes and don't do things that need to be corrected, but it doesn't have anything to do with your character. It doesn't have anything to do with your being. You're loved exactly the way you are, even if you're doing wrong things. That doesn't mean God wants you to do wrong things, but He doesn't want you to change it because you're bad. He wants you to change it because it's not good for you. He doesn't want to see you get hurt. You know, and that's really what humility ultimately is about. If you think back, I suspect you've known some people who are humble in your life. What sort of characteristics did they display? Can't think of anybody. <laughs> Confident? They what? They build up other people, right. Part of it is that they don't need to take credit for everything, do they? Because credit's irrelevant. I mean, <laughs> what difference does that make? That's just an accomplishment. You know, I think it's funny. I'm, I, one of my professors in seminary, Charlie Price, was really a wonderful man. He was one of the most humble people I've ever met in my life. He, um, he was a, an accomplished musician, a pianist, and he wrote music. He's written wrote a couple of the hymns that are in the hymnal. He wrote a number of the prayers that are in the prayer book. He led the committee that revised the prayer book in 1979 and, and got all these people together to try to agree on something. And and so he's really an amazing guy. And yet if you said to him, you did all that, you know, that was amazing. You did He said, oh, I didn't do that. He said, I just had one little piece. We had a whole committee. But that wasn't me. He never would accept credit for it ever. Um, but he would accept any fault that anybody found with it and tell you why it was that they decided to do it that way, you know, which was amazing. I'll tell you a story about humility um, from someone who you wouldn't necessarily expect to be humble. When I, in 1999, I went on sabbatical and I studied at Notre Dame for a week with the Archbishop of Canterbury then, whose name was George Carey. And he was there, and, and I thought, I'm gonna be, there's going to be like 300 people in this class or something. Well, as it turns out, there's like 30 of us in the class, and only three of us are Anglican at all. <laughs> and the rest are Roman Catholic students, and they didn't know who the Archbishop of Canterbury was, nor did they much care. Uh, they just wanted to get to class because it was on evangelization and filled one of the requirements. And I found out that they had, kept, they had put he and his wife up in a, a married student dorm. And so they had no car or anything. They couldn't go anywhere. And they spent uh, two weeks being cooped up in this dorm or, or teaching class, which kind of surprised me. But So when I found that out, I thought, well, I'm going to invite him to lunch or dinner and see if he wants to go. So we invite him out, and he, he said, well, we'd love to go out. We haven't been anywhere. That'd be wonderful. So we decided we're going to go to Olive Garden. And um, just to let you know, I got lost on the way. <laughs> I eventually found my way there. So... Um, when we're going there, um, we're um, on our way there, and, and but right before we left in the hotel, Judy turns to me and says, what do you call the Archbishop of Canterbury? I said, I don't know, I'll ask him. So we get seated at Olive Garden, and, and we're start talking, and so I said, um, can I ask you a question? How, how should we address you? Um, actually, that's not what I said. What I said was, can I ask you a question? My wife wants to know, how should we address you? <laughs> Then I felt a sharp pain in my shin. Um, <laughs> um, and so he said, well, that's interesting, isn't it? And he goes, you know, at formal state dinners, they call me your grace. And I thought, 
okay. And he goes, but that's rather stuffy, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, usually most people just call me Archbishop or Archbishop George. And I thought, well, okay, that'd be good. And he looks at me and goes, oh, no, you and Judy will call us George and Idy, of course. <laughs> so when we got back to the hotel, the minute we get the door closed, Judy turns to me and says, I am not calling the Archbishop of Canterbury, George. <laughs> um, I'm not, and I said, well, why not? That's what he wants to be called. She said, he's touched the hand of the queen. Now, I still haven't figured out what difference that made, but, <laughs> but it did. Um, it was important to her. So, I'm not, still not sure. I don't think Judy ever actually addressed him by name. <laughs> so, a couple of years later, he came to Cincinnati for a visit, and he was doing a big celebration, a millennium celebration down in Cincinnati at the Senta Center, where 10,000 Anglicans came to worship. And so we're all there, and uh, beforehand, the night before, they had a reception. And so since I had known him, and, and he had really kind of gotten to know us because they really missed their grandkids, and John was probably about two at the time, maybe two and a half, something like that. And I mean, we had pictures of him chasing John up the stairs of the the classroom like like he's a monster, you know, trying to get him and they had a ball. So we, we get there. Well, all these clergy, the line to meet the Archbishop of Canterbury is like forever and a day long. I mean, everybody wants to meet the Archbishop of Canterbury. So I thought, well, I'm not going to stand in that line. That's ridiculous. So I thought, I'm going to go talk to his wife. So we get in the shorter line, talk to his wife, and we wait. And I'm holding John, and John's probably about four, three and a half, four, something like that. And so here we are. We're um, in line, and we get up there, and I said, hello, Mrs. Carey. I don't know if you remember me or not, but I studied with your husband at Notre Dame a couple of years ago, and, and she looked at me and went, like, who in the world is this? <laughs> she didn't have a clue who I was, and then she looked at John and went, George, it's the Bairds! <laughs> didn't have a clue who I was, but she knew John. <laughs> And then he immediately detaches himself from all these clergy who were standing in line and comes over immediately. Now, I'm feeling pretty important now, right? Cause, and, and he came right over to me and reached out his arms because he wanted John. <laughs> so I wasn't very popular then, which taught me a lot about humility. But if we're truly going to be humble, what we need to realize is that's exactly what Jesus was like. He never lauded his own accomplishments. Matter of fact, he frequently told people not to tell anybody about it. You know, when Pilate has him before him, he says, um, are you the king of the Jews? What does he say? Well, you say I'm the king of the Jews. And he wasn't that impressed with it. He, he said, I come for one reason only, to tell the truth. The titles weren't important to him. And if titles aren't important to God, why are they important to us? And so that's what Jesus is trying to tell us in this parable about the table. Now, we don't really do things like that much anymore. I mean, you have to go to a formal state dinner or something to have people have seating arrangements and things. 